podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines, people working to understand viruses and how they affect you. We are talking with students, postdocs, and other virologists so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackray, and I am hosting this podcast from America's Heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. On July 5th, 2022, we talked with Tamanash Bhattacharya, postdoctoral fellow at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. He received his bachelor's in engineering from West Bengal University of Technology in India and his PhD in microbiology from Indiana University. He is currently studying the viral evolution of arboviruses, which have evolved to infect two very different hosts. Thanks for talking with us today. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, hi, um, my name is Tamanash Bhattacharya. Um, I'm a postdoc in Dr. Harmeet Malik's lab at Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center um, at Seattle, um, Washington. Um, yeah, I am my second year of my postdoc. I did my graduate studies from Indiana University, graduated in 2020. Before then, I was in India where I did my schooling and my undergraduate degrees. Um, and I'm super happy to be here. Um, I've listened a lot about your podcast. Um, I listened to it on my way to and from work. I'm glad to get this opportunity to talk. Great. And can you tell us sort of um, way back when, when did you first become interested in science and then virology? I guess I was always interested in science um, because I come from um, a medical uh, family of medical professionals. Um, my dad is a doctor. My mom's a nurse. My grandfather before then. Um, so I kind of grew up in an environment where there was a lot of like scientific and medical discussions, lots of terms thrown around. Um, and sort of that got me interested in just disease pathology, I guess. Um, and from then I kind of asked my dad, okay, you know, how can I become like you, you know, like my biggest role model. And he said, well, you know, doctors is not just about treating the disease, it's about treating the patient. Um, so you have to kind of decide which one you like more. Do you like treating the disease more? Or do you like treating patients more? And I found that very useful to kind of kind of decide on what I wanted to do. And I realized that I like studying the disease more and like, you know, understanding why people get sick. Um, so that's sort of what I would say started my curiosity in terms of, um, you know, like disease pathology. And from there, it's kind of like a natural step to looking at microbes. But then um, I'd never really studied a lot of biology in high school. But after having that conversation, this was towards the end of school, um, I sort of decided that I wanted to do something more, you know, therapeutic or drug design, that sort of thing. So I decided to go and get an engineering degree in biotech. Um, and that's what sort of the plan was for like a while before I realized that seemed too dry to me. I wanted to, you know, kind of feel um, the organism in some ways and, you know, like kind of play around with it, do experiments on the bench. Didn't really know how to get there, but I knew what I wanted to do. So after graduating from college, I sort of looked around um, looking for opportunities where someone would give me the chance to kind of work with microbes. Um, I was a bit naive thinking that I was qualified to do so, having no prior experience in um, you know, wet lab work. Um, but luckily I was given the opportunity at a um, 
lab in the School of Tropical Medicine in Calcutta, which is one of the two in the world. The other one is in Liverpool. Um, so I worked in a lab that studied chikungunya virus. Um, and that was the beginning of me working with arboviruses. My first introduction was working with um, these um, isolated strains from the patient population. This was 2013. So there was a big outbreak going on in South Asia. Um, so it was like ground zero, you know, kind of not quite as like a pandemic, but it was a big outbreak, um, kind of working with patients, um, collecting samples and kind of um, isolating them and kind of stereotyping them was kind of the, what the lab did. But uh, what I did was super cool. I worked with a PhD student who was looking at um, how the genotypic differences would play into disease pathology of these different strains. And um, surprisingly, we found two co-circulating strains that were very different in their disease outcome. It turns out there were some genetic differences between them and we sort of worked on that. And that was my first paper that I worked on, um, which was great and that kind of reinstilled that maybe I could do this. Um, there was not a lot of countries that would give the chance to someone with a bachelor's degree in engineering for a PhD position, but United States is one of them. So that was a natural progression. Started reading papers for people who study arboviruses, alpha viruses to be specific. Um, it was very narrow. Looking back, I'm very surprised how it all worked out. But I read papers from the lab that I would eventually go to. Um, I applied to IU. I got into the lab of Dr. Richard Hardy. Um, and I started working with alpha, um, and I, I, I should say I continued to work on alpha viruses. Um, so yeah, that was the start of my graduate school. Um, and yeah, after that, it's all kind of things kind of fell into place. I was really interested in microbiomes. I sort of realized that Viruses, even though we're studying them in a tissue culture tube, they're not by themselves. They're rarely by themselves. So the kind of understanding that we gain by studying these viruses in isolation is limited. So I started looking for, during my rotation actually, um, opportunities to introduce other players into the mix. There was not a lot of microbiome research at IU at the time, but I heard a talk from Dr. Irene Newton, who works on Wolbachia, um, and it's quite amazing how prolific this bacterium is. It's the biggest pandemic that we have never heard of, um, infecting like almost all insect species. Um, turns out Wolbachia spread in mosquitoes. And um, there was a seminal paper from Luis Teixeira that showed that um, these bacteria can inhibit viruses, RNA viruses to be specific, um, and that the mechanism is not known. So I was really interested in, okay, maybe I can find, give, find this as an opportunity, kind of like learn more about the, how the inhibition occurs, but maybe that will teach me more about how the virus can be inhibited naturally, right? Um, so I spoke to both of them. They've never really worked together before, but they kind of joined the two fields together and kind of um, did my dissertation on that project on how to kind of understand how a bacterium can kind of change the host in such a way that it naturally um, affects how the virus um, infection outcome is. And that taught us a lot about how the virus can be. And that's sort of what got me interested into all these um, modifications that arboviruses can do to kind of um, be successful at infecting 
two very very different hosts, and that's sort of what I'm interested in right now. And that's sort of what that's sort of what I work with right now. Right, and can you actually describe, I guess, how you got then to your postdoc, um, and then maybe some of the work that you're doing there? Yeah. So um, my postdoc um, interview was also super um, sudden in the sense that I wasn't really preparing for going up for interviews. I guess few people are when they're in the final year of PhD. You never really know when you're going to graduate. Am I ready now? Um, is what I was thinking at the moment. But then um, um, Dr. Newton, um, she actually did a sabbatical in Dr. Malik's lab not too long ago. And she spoke very highly of him. Um, I've, of course, known him from Twitter. He's very Twitter famous. Um, and he's a fantastic scientist and mentor. But I was too afraid to approach him for a position. Um, but then my interest sort of, um, you know, kind of was always in the evolution side of virology, um, kind of thinking as to how adaptive um, mutations can occur on viral genomes, especially those that have kind of have to jump between different hosts. They must have some adaptive features on their um, genetic information that kind of like allow them to do that. So um, that's sort of what I pitched to Dr. Malik. Um, and that's what led me here because that's what the lab does. We deal with genetic conflicts. Right. And I guess then, can you tell us um, in a, maybe a little bit more detail, sort of what's the big question that you're trying to um, address? And then maybe some of the techniques that you use to actually do your studies. Yeah. So um, I would say the biggest question is how these multi-host viruses are able to kind of deal with these very different, sometimes genetic conflicts in two very different hosts. I find it very remarkable that a virus like arboviruses, for example, um, can actually infect organisms that are set apart by 500 million years of evolution. That's kind of mind blowing to me. Um, the fact that they all kind of originated in the insect at some point and over evolutionary time, they kind of found a way to infect vertebrates and then became really successful at it. So that's, is my major goal is kind of find out um, on the genetic level what sort of adaptations are required to do such a thing. Um, and also at the same time kind of test because these viruses are sort of unique in the sense that they cannot have a vertebrate to vertebrate infection site, like infection chain for a long time. They kind of have to go back obligately to the insect host and kind of do a back and forth in some ways which must impose a lot of genetic um, mutational constraints on these viruses. And they have such small genomes. So um, that's the other angle of what I'm interested in is um, what are the mutational constraints on um, albrovirus genomes to be able to infect multiple hosts. Having, having this idea that you actually have to infect two very disseparate hosts, does that sort of, like you were saying, constrain your ability to evolve antigenically and evolve just involve in general because you have to go back and forth. And so the strategy is more, you know, using the same sort of sequence or a similar sequence, um, but just trying to expand basically to more and more hosts because you have two different um, hosts to infect. That's a good question. So there's been a lot of studies that have been done on this in terms of whether or not um, 
this sort of alternating lifestyle imposes like fitness costs or like mutational constraints or, um, you know, like just put brakes on the evolution of these viruses clearly doesn't <laughs> because the viruses continue to evolve. Uh, so it's sort of paradoxical in some ways as to how viruses are able to do so. Um, Again, there's a lot of theories into, you know, how the fitness landscape of arboviruses look alike. There's a lot of theories as to whether these fitness landscapes are very different in uh, mosquitoes and vertebrates, or whether there's some overlap or no overlap. I would say it's a combination of all of them <laughs> that probably make them very useful, that there are certain regions that are very adaptive to one host, um, maybe the selection pressure in one host is greater than the other one that drives that sort of adaptation. Some of which are known to us for certain viruses, not all certainly. But then, yeah, that's sort of what I think is there's this mixture of uh, different kinds of genetic landscapes, depending on which part of the virus you're looking at, which virus you're looking at. Um, and it's sort of, there are certainly you know, certain sequences that are very important in humans that are dispensable in mosquitoes. Um, but, you know, the virus can't afford to do so because it has to go back to the mosquitoes. You have to maintain that. Uh, if that means that the virus cannot attain the best fitness it can achieve in humans to kind of um, be able to still infect mosquitoes, then that's the trade-off that it gives up, but eventually the it still adapts enough that um, it's able to maintain that lifestyle. Right, and how do you study that? So are you using tissue culture or animal models, you know, uh, bioinformatic analysis? How do you do this kind of a study? Because it sounds complicated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, right now I'm keeping it simple. I'm using on cell cultures um, to kind of address these sort of fundamental questions. Um, it would be lovely to work with in vivo uh, systems. Um, and that's sort of, you know, in the future, future direction sort of thing. We do a lot of um, computational work too. Um, part of the things that I'm approaching this problem um, with is I'm using sort of a forwards and a reverse genetics approach to do so. And soil culture just has that tractability, um, but that we sacrifice in like relevance, but I am confident that it will give us the answer that we are seeking at the moment. So we do a lot of um, experimental evolution. That's sort of our evolving sequence, sort of forwards genetics approach um, by, you know, adding or removing a constraint from individual conditions, whether it be mosquito or human. And then the other thing that we do on the reverse genetic side is kind of methodically look at individual viral proteins and then do deep mutational scanning of them, um, which is sort of a very powerful technique um, that, you know, I'm still learning to adapt. It is, um, that's sort of the way that we're trying to do this. It's kind of map on an individual residue basis. What is important in which host versus not. And do you then have to take into account um, 
uh, RNA structure or viral genome structure as well. Because, yeah, we actually had someone on not too long ago, and that's all she studies is basically structure function of RNA, um, long coding RNAs, different types of RNAs. And so how do you account for that in some of your uh, adaptation? Because uh, one nucleotide can do many things, right? Absolutely. Um, and that's sort of what fascinates me too. Um, it's that that's kind of ties into what I found during my graduate school is how viruses can do that. Like there's just so many layers of modification that the virus can do because it is so limited in its genetic capacity. So to answer your question, there are certainly um, adaptations that viruses have that are known to be at the non-coding level and non-structure level. I mean, um, our Plavi viruses um, are famous for that. Um, Alphaviruses too, like uh, alphaviruses too. Um, there is a way of doing that sort of uh, study, obviously with our experimental evolution, we will, be able to, it, we will be able to get that at those synonymous changes and make some um, sense out of that to kind of focus on the untranslated regions of the viral genome or known conserved sequences that we know are local structures that um, are well characterized and see if there are changes there. Um, but on a more thorough level, we can still use deep mutational scanning to kind of look for mutagenize the individual non-coding RNAs, um, those UTRs to kind of address that question as well. I would, would add though, not just with RNA structure, um, I'm also fascinated with the epitranscriptome of viruses um, because that's what kind of peaked during the latter end of my PhD was seeing that how um, Wolbachia changes the epitranscriptomic profile of the cell and therefore the virus. And that's sort of fascinating to me. And I'm not quite sure how to get at that question um, with deep mutational scanning or experimental evolution, but I know that layer is still there. So it's kind of hard to get it out of my head when I'm looking at results. Yeah, I guess in a way, maybe using cell lines that were knocked out in the um, modification machinery or something like that, right? Because that's usually coming from the host. Maybe that would be a way to get at it. Absolutely. And I would love to do those studies. Yeah, that would be very interesting. Huh? Yeah, it's, it's complicated, I'll say. <laughs> yeah. Um, Cool. And do you, obviously you're rather, you're still at the beginning stage of your postdoc in a way, but do you have sort of thoughts about what you want or what you're aiming for in the future? Like, are you thinking about staying in academics? Are you interested in industry, public health? Do you have any thoughts about that? Um, I would love to stay in academia. Um, I would love to work at an R1 institution um, or a national lab anywhere where I would be able to get the resources that I would need to kind of pursue these sort of questions. Um, the kind of questions that I ask is not very translational. I guess no one really knows until the time comes, but I really value uh, um, basic sciences um, and like understanding like fundamental, um, addressing fundamental questions. Um, so I would love to kind of pursue those questions um, as you know, a researcher and our own institution. That being said, I also like to teach. Um, um, I haven't had a lot of teaching experience in my postdoc because where, where I am right now, but I would not be opposed to um, working at like a PUI um, if I can, you know, kind of pursue the questions that I would like to. 
Right. I, I mean, I actually say I you know, evolution of viruses and how viruses evolve with their hosts is probably, I mean, it used to be sort of a basic research question, but it's at the forefront of public health and everything else right now. Certainly. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say even the layperson knows more about viral evolution than they ever wanted to. And, and it's sort of remarkable. It's a very unfortunate scenario that we're in right now. But yeah, like virology kind of like took such a leap forward in like people's, you know, like conversation, daily conversation. Right, right. So actually, what's that been like for you the last two and a half years? So you actually were, you know, moving from your PhD into your postdoc. What's it been like for you as, I guess, in, you know, as a person, but also as a virologist? Um, I would say, I would first say what my, um, you know, experience was as a PhD student. Like, it's kind of harrowing to be able to, you know, experience this sort of like massive shutdown, lockdown, you know, you're not allowed to be in lab. Um, especially when you're like this close to graduating. Um, at the moment, I was really, you know, nervous. But then I realized it helped me kind of sit down and look at my data more. Um, I would say that, you know, there have been times when you can work and work and work and collect all the data that you need. But frequently, you need to kind of sit down and look at it. Um, and that really helped uh, for me because I came um, came on some really interesting questions and observations by looking at the data that I already collected. And um, having done so, um, the pandemic, um, while it restricted my entry into the lab, um, it also helped me gather new skills. So I was really interested, like I said, in viral evolution, not just viral evolution, but just evolutionary biology and sort of learning computationally how you can you know, do certain analyses or some um, some light, you know, coding to be able to address some of the questions that you might be wondering, but not necessarily know how to get there. Um, so I kind of took that opportunity to kind of um, work on that. Um, I came up with, you know, people in the lab who could um, help me with this sort of thing. Um, and they were very generous with their time. Um, people had more time on their hands at the moment too. So it was a good opportunity to kind of get those skills and apply them. So I was surprised that I, that was probably the fastest paper that I got out during my entire PhD. And I'm kind of envying um, genomic scientists at the moment. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was professionally. And then, um, yeah, like, as a person, it was really tough as, as, as it was for all of us. I am international, so it was difficult for me not being able to go home. The hardest thing was not having my parents there for my graduation. There was no graduation in some ways. Um, so it felt even more anticlimactic than what I'm told. So that was the toughest part, I would say. Right, right. And um, I believe you're presenting a poster, is that right? Or a talk at ESV? I am. I am I'm presenting a poster. Okay, great. And what will it be about? So the poster is actually not about my main project. Um, aside from working with live viruses, I also like working with ancient viral remains. Um, and that's sort of a skill, um, that's sort of a niche area that I came upon um, when I joined um, Dr. Malik's lab because he kind of invented paleovirology. Um, and 
yeah, so this is a really unique viral gene um, that is a remnant of um, infection in mosquitoes that happened maybe in the late Triassic, early Jurassic, so 150 million years ago. Um, <laughs> so this was a virus that presumably infected mosquitoes. Um, somehow its gene got into the genome of mosquitoes over time. Only one viral gene has remained um, and has been domesticated by mosquitoes as a part of their own genomes. Um, so in this poster, I basically, um, you know, talk about how we analyzed and identified this um, gene and what it, it might be doing. It seems is really, really unique in the sense that it is an envelope gene. So um, it, when it's part of the virus, you know, it can help facilitate fusion of the viral membrane and cell membrane and uh, allow it to go into uh, host cells. But we know of a very, very famous example of an envelope gene that's been domesticated, which is incited which is where our placenta is right from. Um, but as far as we know, mosquitoes don't have a placenta. So what is it doing, right? So that's what we're interested in right now, kind of characterizing what this envelope gene is doing in mosquitoes that has been very highly conserved and is under tremendous purifying selection. Hmm. Very interesting. That's sort of my two favorite subjects, archaeology or, you know, so like ancient stuff and viruses all together at once. <laughs> well, yeah, same for me, same for me. Like this is the closest I would be able to becoming Dr. Ellen Grant. <laughs> all right, cool. Well, thanks so much for talking with us today. And we look forward to uh, seeing your poster at ASB. It was great talking to you. Thank you. This has been Let's Meet the Virologist, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackeray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon Music, and other podcast providers or at lmtv.podbean.com.